Good morning. I also want to say welcome to First Methodist Mansfield. My name is Johnny Brower, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be in church with you this morning here in worship. And I have to say, between our music and uh, a baptism and what David just said as a reflection of that music, I feel like we're done here. Like, I don't feel like we need to do anything else, but golly, I worked so hard on this thing. If you wouldn't mind, <laughs> I'm going to preach it anyways. Man, we are... Uh, we're in the, the last week of our series, Unlikely Heroes. So as we get started, if you would take your Bibles that you brought with you and turn to the book of Nehemiah. That's the book we don't venture into too often here in the church. Um, but it is a great story, and it is packed full of great wisdom and truth for us uh, today. So if you did bring your Bible and you need help finding Nehemiah, it's in the Old Testament. If you crack your Bible open in half, you're probably in Psalms, Proverbs area. If you move backwards from Psalms, you'll find Job, Esther, and then Nehemiah. So it's right there, pretty easy. Uh, to find. Now, uh, this is, like I said, the, the final weekend in our series called Unlikely Heroes. And this series, we started this series because we kind of wanted to capitalize on this idea that we all love a good hero story. We especially love superhero stories. We love our heroes because we know each and every year yields a handful of superhero movies that uh, make millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. And I go see Every single one of them. We love themes of self-sacrifice and good, triumphant over evil. We love those things. And, and we'll sit on the edges of our seats, uh, you know, willingly, but with such anxiety because we watch the hero overcome these impossible odds and great adversity. We love it. This is true of our real-life heroes as well. We love to retell and hear the stories of determination and, and bravery People like Abraham Lincoln and Jackie Robinson, Dr. Martin Luther King, Eleanor Roosevelt. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Infinite number of people that we could talk about that we would consider to be heroes. And we love to hear their stories. People who lived lives of great significance that literally changed the course of history. These people are in inspirations, and their names and their stories are legendary, and they even can become larger than life and, and somewhat mythological, which is why it's important that this other word exists in the title of our series. When we introduce and examine the unlikeliness of our heroes, we found out that they too, they're not, they're not too different from us. Because otherwise, we might unintentionally attribute some rare and unique hero quality or hero gene to these people that they possess. And this is why they were able to be heroes. And in so doing, we exclude ourselves from any heroic possibilities because we might not possess that gene. And so it excuses us from being heroes. And in the, in the sermons that he preached here during this series, Pastor David shared with you a book uh, called Resilience uh, by an ex-Navy SEAL named Eric Greitens. And it's a collection of letters that he wrote to another former SEAL that was having trouble adapting to life back home, suffering from PTSD and a dependency on alcohol. And in and, and a part of that book, I really love this quote, uh, and it goes like this, The most important thing to let go of, the thing so many of us struggle to let go of, is the idea that our heroes are flawless. We have to put that idea away if only because such a view of heroes begins to limit our view of our lives. If we believe that our heroes are flawless, we begin to believe that we, being flawed, are incapable of heroism. So in this series, um, 
We've been, we've been examining heroes from the Bible. We've been uh, looking at characters, some that we know very well, some that we don't know so well, in order to find out what makes them heroic, what makes their lives so significant, and what does a significant life look like. But we also want to look at their unlikeliness so that we can find ourselves in their story and find out that we too are capable of being heroes. So if you've missed any of this series, uh, I invite you to go to our website. We have all our messages archived there. We also have a podcast on iTunes that you could subscribe to and find them there. So today's story, I think, uh, speaks to a great longing for many of us in this room. I would say for most of us in this room, uh, there's a great longing here. And I think for many of us, if, if, we were to, if we were asked to describe our lives in one word, that word could be busy. I know some people in here are shaking their heads like, yeah, my life is busy. We have busy lives. The demands on our time and intention are overwhelming. And between work and home and family and kids and spouse and school and friendships and finances and goals and projects and dreams and hurts and habits and hang-ups and whatever combination of those things that comprise your life, you're full. You're busy. I know even for some in this room, you make it to the end of the day and you're like, I don't even know how I got here. I'm so exhausted. And you have just enough time to go to bed to wake up and do it all over again. It seems like day after day it's the same thing over and over. It's just so many demands. And, and somewhere deep inside of us, somewhere deep in there, there's this thing. There's this one thing, or, or maybe just a couple things, that, that we know if we were able to spend our time and our energy and, and focus on that thing or things, and we were able to accomplish it, our lives would radically change. Our lives would radically change. And often not just our lives, but those lives that surround us would be greatly affected as well. Now this, this thing that's in there is different for all of us. It's unique to everyone's situation and it's not something that I can define for you. But if you were able to identify that one thing, if you were able to focus on it, maybe for the next six months or 12 months, really focus on that one thing, your life would be drastically different. So at the end of this message, uh, we're going to walk through a couple suggestions to help us start thinking about what that one thing uh, may be. But first, we're going to look at this story, this really cool story nestled here into the Old Testament that hopefully will speak directly to this idea and this longing for clarity and focus. So the story of Nehemiah takes place in 444 BCE. Now get ready because this is just a little bit of history, but I know you can handle it. I know you actually love this secretly, so it's okay. 444 BCE, Nehemiah takes place. It takes place during uh, the, per the time of the Persian Empire. It's the most dominant force in the world at this time. And Artaxerxes, which is a really easy name to say, Artaxerxes I is the emperor of Persia. Now Nehemiah is Artaxerxes' cupbearer. And they live in Susa, the capital. Now, many of you know that the cupbearer is actually uh, the wine taster for the king. But for those of you that don't know, that's not some way of saying that Nehemiah was the sommelier for, for Artaxerxes. Uh, Nehemiah's job was not to uh, suggest what uh, Xerxes should pair with his steak dinner. Instead, Nehemiah's job was to protect the king from being poisoned by inspecting the wine that that the king would drink, and often having to taste that wine to be sure that it wasn't poisoned. 
Now, while this may sound like a really cruddy job to the rest of us, in actuality, the cupbearer was a person of great influence and great importance and prestige, and it was actually quite a lucrative job. Artaxerxes was the most powerful and important person in the most dominant empire in the world, and Nehemiah, Nehemiah literally held the king's life in his hands every time he went to take a drink. This gives the cupbearer great influence not only over the officials that seek counsel from the king, but also the king himself. So our story picks up here in chapter 1. Nehemiah, not a Persian but Jewish, learns from some men from Judah about the state of Jerusalem. So here in chapter 1, verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now what you have to know is about a hundred years prior to this moment, uh, Israel was under Babylonian rule. Now Babylon was the, was the dominant force. And when the Babylonians took over, they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. They broke down the walls, and they even exiled everybody that lived there, sent them away, told them they were not allowed to live here any longer. But when King Cyrus of the Persians came and defeated the Babylonians, he actually invited them all to move back. He invited all of the Jews to move back into their, into their land and even helped them begin to rebuild some of their cities. Now, we, we're here a hundred-ish or so years later, and Nehemiah, who's likely never been to Jerusalem, is anxious to hear about the progress of the home of his ancestors. And these people come, and they tell him, and what he hears is not good news. The people are in great trouble and disgrace because the wall protecting Jerusalem is broken down, leaving it vulnerable to raids and attacks. So around that area, there were many tribes and, and some warlords that, you know, when there's a vulnerable city, they can come in and take whatever they want and do whatever they want anytime they want. So the people there live in constant fear. Their, their, their national and in many ways their spiritual identity is vulnerable to physical attack at all times. And there's no sense of pride or, or protection or strength for the people living there because they live in constant fear. And Nehemiah's heart just breaks upon hearing this. And then Nehemiah does something that's really risky. He goes before the king and he asks the king if he can go and help those people there. Now this is risky because Nehemiah is asking the king to relieve his most trusted servant. I mean, how can the king so easily replace somebody like Nehemiah, somebody he trusts explicitly? Can't just replace him. Or what if the king just gets angry because Nehemiah even suggested that he would leave? And it was, Nehemiah was even suggesting that the king would have to find somewhere else. Maybe, maybe the king would then just fire Nehemiah and still not let him go. It was risky. It's also risky because for Nehemiah, this is a pretty comfortable job. He would have to leave the comforts of the palace. He would have to leave this job that makes him a lot of money and gives him a lot of influence. Not only that, he leaves everything he knows and goes to a place that he doesn't know. And clearly it's a place of danger. Who knows what could happen? And who knows if his job is going to be waiting for him if and when he returns? But the king grants him his request. And in fact, the king does him one better. Actually, the king makes him governor of Judea. 
and sends him with a royal decree that says nobody is allowed to harm this person. And also, Nehemiah, I want you to take whatever you need. When you get there, if you need timber, if you need rocks, whatever you need, you got it. Do what you got to do, but on one condition. You got to come back. You got to come back. You're not allowed to stay there forever. I really like you, and I want you back here. So go do what you got to do, but then I need you to, to come back here. So Nehemiah goes. He arrives in Jerusalem. He spends, he spends a couple days there, and then he goes out and starts to survey the city. He walks around the remnants of the wall, looking at all the cracks, looking at where it's crumbling, surveying, inspecting. And he gets this vision, because here's the thing, is that Nehemiah knows when he goes there that there's a lot of things that need to be done in Jerusalem. There's a, there's a lot of things that have to happen for it to reach uh, prominence again. The economy's got to be fixed. fixed. Uh, Nehemiah's got to train up some leaders and put leadership in place so that the city remains strong. There's many things. I mean, there's got to be an army. He's got to train soldiers to protect themselves. Like, there's so many things that Nehemiah has to do, but he gets clarity around this one thing, this one idea that he knows absolutely has to happen above all else before he goes because he's going to have to return. He knows that there's this one thing that if he does nothing else the entire time he is in Jerusalem, he's got to get this one thing done. And so he, he brings the, the people together, calls them together as he reenters the city. And he tells them what God has laid on his heart. Chapter 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Nehemiah knew that this one thing that he had to do was rebuild the wall. If he did nothing else, that had to happen first. He had to rebuild that wall before he could leave. So Nehemiah organized the people. They got to work and quickly began to make progress. But something happened when they began to make progress, when they began to rebuild this wall, that there were people from the surrounding areas. Remember those people I told you about that liked to raid the city because the wall was broken down? There's these people from the surrounding areas that noticed what was happening and began to be concerned because many of these surrounding tribes and officials, their livelihood depended on the vulnerability of Jerusalem. And if the wall is rebuilt, then their way of life is threatened. If the wall is rebuilt, Jerusalem might actually be a force to be reckoned with. They might become competition. And so these surrounding leaders of these tribes began to plot against Nehemiah. Now sort of the ringleader of these outside officials was this guy named Sanballat. Now I know what you're thinking, Sanballat, that's an interesting name. And I want to help you out here. If anybody here is about to have a child, what I want you to know is that my suggestion to you is that you just take that name off the table. Like it's, it's such a, I mean, not a, not a very good, Malone is a great name, Sandballot, not so much a great name, all right? But Sandballot and his crew, they, they show up and they, and they begin to mock Nehemiah and the workers. They begin to ridicule them in hopes of disheartening them and defeating their spirits. They threaten and they attack the workers to try to stop 
progress on the wall. Uh, Nehemiah has to place guards at the wall to protect the workers. Even some of the workers had to start wearing swords to protect themselves while they were working, but work never stopped. As much as Sanballat and the other leaders tried desperately to sabotage the building of the wall, work never stopped. Progress continued, and the wall kept getting higher and higher and higher. And soon, when the wall was almost complete, for all intents and purposes, the wall was complete. They just needed to put in the gates and the doors to seal off the entryways. Sandballot finally realizes that his strategy isn't working. I mean, it's a little late, I would think, but he finally realizes, well, this isn't working, guys. They got the wall done. They're about to put the doors up. We have to do something different here. So Sanballat devises this plan to try to get Nehemiah off the wall and out of the city so that they can kill him. Because they believe if they can get rid of Nehemiah, their leader, then the people would be discouraged. They will have fear again. And that all the work that had been done could easily be Undone. So we'll pick it up here in chapter 6. Now Nehemiah is like 13 chapters long, but here in chapter 6, I think we find the most significant part of our story. Verse 1. Now when it was reported to Sanballat and Tobiah and to Geshem and to the rest of our enemies that I had built the wall and that there was no gap left in it, though up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come and let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. Now, first of all, if you're asking me to go to a place called Ono, somebody told me that joke yesterday after I preached this sermon. I was like, thanks, I'm going to use that. <laughs> but they come to him and they're like, Nehemiah, come on down, man. I know we've been trying to do all these crazy things to you, but here's the deal. Like, that's all over now. Let's just talk. Come down. You got to be thirsty. You want a coffee or something? What are you drinking? Flat white? Is that what you, is that what you like? What about a mocha? Like how, what do you drink, Nehemiah? Are you tired? Take a break. Let's get some lunch. You come down off that wall. Let's bury the hatchet here. We're going to be pals now. All you need to do is come down. But they intended to do me harm, so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to come down to you? And four times after this point, four times they sent messengers asking Nehemiah to come down. And four times Nehemiah responds to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. See, so you see, Nehemiah understands something. He understands that he allows him, if he allows himself to get distracted, if he allows himself to get discouraged and give up, if he abandons the work that he has set out to do, if he stops working on, on the wall, if he comes down off of that wall, then the city will end up right back where it started, destroyed, disgraced, and under constant threat. But there's a lot of things that Nehemiah could have chosen to do back in Susa, back in the palace when he heard news of this. There's a lot of things he could have chosen to do there. There's a lot of things that he could have chosen to do once he arrived in Jerusalem. But this wall is the great work that God has called him to in this moment. And he says that I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. 
Spoiler alert, if you haven't read this story, the wall does get finished. Nehemiah does not come down and finishes the wall. What makes Nehemiah great, what makes Nehemiah a hero, is his great clarity around the purpose of his life and great focus around the pursuit of that purpose. Nehemiah has a crystal clear understanding of what God has called him to, and he sets out and allows nothing to distract him from that work. But this isn't something that's necessarily natural to Nehemiah. Nehemiah isn't just naturally a great visioner or, or, or really stubborn, not necessarily. But every step of the way, every moment of Nehemiah's life where he was faced with a decision, Nehemiah goes to God in prayer. See, Nehemiah's great clarity and great focus come from spending time in prayer, spending time at the feet of Jesus, spending time in the presence uh, of God. In chapter 1, as soon as Nehemiah hears of the situation in Jerusalem, he begins to pray. That's practically all of chapter 1. Nehemiah hears this and immediately goes to God in prayer, seeking God's wisdom, seeking God's will, seeking God's call on his life. And every time Nehemiah hears people uh, mocking him when he's working on the wall and, and trying to discourage him and when they're attacking him, every time Nehemiah goes to God in prayer to help, to help himself be reminded of that purpose. Because it's easy to forget when the threats and the naysayers come in, but he's reminded of his purpose. And when he regains that clarity, he has a resolve and a determination and a great focus around accomplishing that thing. Now, what makes Nehemiah unlikely? What makes Nehemiah unlikely is that he had to abandon this life that he knew to pursue this new life that he was called to. This life was comfortable. It was a life that he knew very well. He had a great job. He had lots of influence. He made really good money. He knew he had to leave it behind if he was going to pursue this thing, but he had no idea the dangers that lied ahead. Nehemiah had every reason not to pursue this great work that he had been called to. But thanks to that prayer, and thanks to the leading of God, Nehemiah goes. And when Nehemiah in inevitably faces these trials, threats, distractions, gossips, each time he goes to God in prayer and he's reminded He's reminded of his purpose. He regains his clarity and then focuses on that purpose. Because Nehemiah knows this. That this great work he's been called to. That there is so much at stake if he continues or if he fails. So much at stake. And I think this is what's significant for us today. I think this is what's significant for us today. That there are things in our lives that are so important, things that God has called us to, that if we don't complete them, if we don't gain clarity around them and then focus diligently on these things, that there's potential for hurt, there's potential for harm, there's potential for destruction if we don't gain that clarity and focus on that purpose. So what you have to do is, is you have to decide what that wall is. You seek God in prayer for the things that burden your heart, the things that break your heart. Where is that wall in your life? And where is the courage coming from? 
that's going to call you up on top of that wall. That's going to have you say, I'm not coming down from here until this work is done. Maybe some of you hear that that wall is your marriage. There are cracks forming in the wall of your marriage, and you know you have to deal with it. You see the cracks. You know you have to deal with it, but there's so much in your life that is demanding your time and your energy that you have none to devote to that wall. But you also know that if you don't get up there and get to work, that the whole thing could just crumble. So you have to decide here and now that this is my great work and I will not come down. For some of you, it might be your finances. You're looking at your bills that are piling up around you and it, and it seems absolutely impossible. It's an impossible task because it, it, it's just so astronomical. There's so much work to do and the, and the demands of your lifestyle leave the, the cracks in your wall unattended and might even make those cracks bigger. And it's going to take great courage and focus and determination to climb up on that wall and declare that you are not coming down until this mess is cleaned up. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. I don't care what kind of car I have to drive. I don't care what kind of house I live in or rents. I don't care what kind of clothes I have to wear. I am not coming down off this wall until it is rebuilt. For some of you, maybe your health, there's a habit there's an addiction that is widening the cracks in your wall, threatening to destroy you if you don't deal with it. Maybe for some of you, it's a new habit that needs to begin. A dedication to rebuilding the wall of your health that's been deteriorating because you've been so focused and so busy with all these other things, you can't pay attention to it. And the wall of your health is crumbling. Maybe for somebody in here, it's a dream or a goal that you've kind of had in the back of your mind. You've talked with a few people about it, but you've always said, oh, someday, one day, it's been this dream. And maybe that time for that dream is now. Maybe you've wanted to start your own business. You've seen this great need in our community, and you've wanted to start this business, and maybe now's the time. Heck, maybe you want to go into ministry. Maybe it's time you've been, you've been feeling this call. You've been thinking in the back of your head, I want to start a small group. I want to help lead a small group. I want to join a small group. There are plenty of reasons, there's plenty of excuses or, or distractions that have kept you off that wall, but you know that now's the time to get up there, to climb up that wall. For some of you, when you tuck your kids in, whether they're a few months old or they're 17 years old, I don't know if you tuck in your 17-year-old or not, but maybe you look at them and you think, this is my great work. I'm doing a great work here, and I can't come down. There are a lot of opportunities. There are a lot of things I could do. There are a lot of places I could be, but this is where I need to be right now. I don't know what your thing is, but I have a hunch that you do. I have a hunch that for many of you, from the second I said that one thing, you knew what it was. But I do know that when you ask God about that which burdens your heart, and you gain great clarity around that one thing that you need to be focused on right now, that opposition will come. People will think you're weird. People will not understand. You'll hear criticism. You may feel discouraged. You may get tired. You may get scared. But know that God has called you to a great work. And you can declare that you're not coming down 
until the job is done. And it's going to take the Nehemiah type of clarity and focus to get up that wall and stay up there. So my prayer for us is that we find ourselves in this story of Nehemiah. That we know what God is calling us to. We know that that is a great work in our lives. And that if we lean into the calling that God has placed on us. That if we agree to leave behind distraction and to climb up that ladder, that we will see the significance of that calling and will be focused and determined to do it. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your love and grace and we just pray now, God, that as your spirit fills our souls and our hearts and our minds, God, that you give us clarity of vision to know that one thing in our life that we need to be focused on right now. And God, we pray for the strength and the courage to remain atop that wall when we climb up there. That even in distraction and discouragement, in the midst of fear and threats, God, that we will not come down because we know that you have called us to something great. In your name we pray. Amen.